0: Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Heath Carter. Dr. Carter is an Associate Professor of American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's received degrees from Georgetown University, the University of Chicago Divinity School, and a PhD in history from the University of Notre Dame. He has published extensively, including a book titled Union Made, Working People and the Rise of Social Christianity in Chicago, and is currently working on a new book entitled On Earth as it is in Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality, which is under contract with Oxford University Press, and it retells the story of the American social gospel. First of all, Dr. Carter, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me on. Great to be here.
0: Um, This month, the month of November, or at least when this episode comes out, is uh, two anniversaries, uh, the anniversary of Dorothy Day's uh, um, birth. She was born November 8th, 1897, and she died November 29th, 1980. Uh, So two anniversaries. This is the 41st anniversary of her death. Uh, And in 2015, Pope Francis gave a speech in front of the joint session of Congress and mentioned four Americans by name, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Jr., and two Catholics, Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. Uh, Francis said about Dorothy Day, her social activism, her passion for justice, and the cause of the oppressed were inspired by the gospel her faith and the example of the saints. And after Francis uh, gave this speech, uh, I heard many people, including a lot of many Catholics, say that they'd never even heard of Dorothy Day and and don't really know anything about her. So um, in light of these anniversaries and uh, Pope Francis pointing correctly to the importance of Dorothy Day and the sort of waning knowledge uh, of Dorothy Day, I thought we could have a conversation today about her, who she was, why she was important uh, at, in her time and, uh, and even today. So why don't we start with a basic uh, biographical question? Who was Dorothy Day?
1: Yeah, it's great. Um, Day is certainly, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that Pope Francis uh, brought her up in that speech uh, a few years back is I mean, certainly one of the more important American Catholics in the 20th century. She, um, you know, early on in her life, uh, had gotten involved in radical movements, not related to her faith, you know, labor and, and socialist movements. Um, but she she, you know, became a Catholic and um, kind of brought her radical convictions with her and and understood them as um, deeply connected to her faith. And with Peter Morin, she founded, a movement called the Catholic Worker Movement, um, which uh, started off with sort of houses of hospitality in cities and um, rural outposts, kind of uh, farm commune kind of situations. Uh, the The movement started also with a newspaper, uh, the Catholic Worker, which was designed to be kind of a penny paper that would be readily available to um, you know any worker who wanted to read it and. I mean, part of Day's vision was really a vision of um, she. She called it voluntary poverty. Um, part of why she became well known is she was herself a person um, who was not, you know, extraordinarily wealthy or anything like that, but certainly had kind of middle class, uh, you know, abilities to to live a middle class life, but chose to live among the poor. And she made a, a strong argument um, throughout her life that, in some sense, for Christians who um, inhabit a world as we do where there is remarkable inequality um that this is the, you know one way to live faithfully in the world is to live a life of voluntary poverty and she called people to join her in that life and so part of her legacy is certainly is this catholic worker movement and and, and i mean one of the things we can talk about more with day is that she was never a, she was never like a uh Uh, whatchamacallit, a strategic planner. That was not her way. She was not interested in strategic plans. She wasn't interested in, you know, here's five steps to the kingdom of God. Um, She was a person who really believed, uh, one of her books is called Loaves and Fishes, and she talks in that book about how um, all we can do is take one step at a time, lay one brick at a time, and pray that God will multiply the the fruits of our efforts just as Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And so, I mean, Day's approach to social change, to social questions, reflects that kind of faith that um, she didn't have it all figured out, um, but she started a movement in the 1930s that's still going on today. And I think that's one of the more remarkable things about her movement is that she didn't have... Uh, a transition plan. She didn't have, uh, you know, all these kind of uh, mechanisms and structures in place, but there's something there, some kind of inspiration. The spirit uh, was alive in day in ways that, um, yeah, left a powerful legacy that that continues to unfold today.
0: Uh, That's a wonderful summary. I'd like to go into detail in in most of those issues. So at the beginning, you, you talked about her being a convert. Uh, Previously, uh, she had been enamored uh, with socialism or communism, and then she converted to Catholicism. In fact, she sort of famously had her Uh, baby baptized in the Catholic church before she was even baptized in the Catholic church. Um, And some people today couldn't even conceive of the idea of converting to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially uh, this was of course all prior to Vatican II. So there were no sort Mm -hmm. of RCIA classes. Latin Mm -hmm. was in mass. I don't think at the time she knew Latin or at least not very well. Mm -hmm. Um, So why would this woman convert to Catholicism? What, What drew her to it?
1: Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to say there. Uh, Day was certainly drawn to the sacraments. Um, Day loved the church. She loved the idea of the church. She loved priests. She loved uh, the kind of rituals that bound Catholics together in a common life. She, um, I think she's, she found a lot of beauty in, in liturgy and sacrament and in in church, capital C, kind of the the body of Christ, um, you know, and 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 she would see in I think the church, you know, she found what she considered the truth and and you know goodness and beauty, um, and those were all appealing to her. Now she also, you know, she wrote quite a lot in her life about how, on the one hand, she revered priests. I mean, very much in the spirit of kind of pre-Vatican II, she really revered priests, really believed in um them as vessels of god to her uh and, you know the eucharist she 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 talked a lot about these things even as she also really wrestled with the uh the church institutions and she sometimes found herself at odds with bishops she sometimes found herself at odds with sort of uh even church teaching at, at, in moments where she was at cross purposes on questions about war and peace or about economic questions um but uh, she was nevertheless drawn to it. And she's part of, you know, there's a number of uh, figures in the 20th century who, you know, convert to Catholicism because they're drawn in some way by the, the wonder of the church and its mysterious ways, uh, even as, you know, they found sort of things to quibble about um, and would sort of wrestle with ecclesiastical authorities throughout her throughout her life.
0: You had mentioned earlier uh, Peter Morin, who um, I think we always need to talk about, Peter Morin and Do- Dorothy Day together, um, and he was, you had mentioned three, three, the three sort of prongs of the Catholic worker, which I want to get to later, uh, the, the, the newspapers, the houses of hospitality, and the communes, and agronomic uh, ag- agronomic universities. Mm. Um, So those those were sort of his brainchild. Mm. Uh, uh, She, Dorothy Day, had sort of been praying for God to send her someone, uh, I I guess you would say a mentor. Uh, She didn't know exactly what she was wanting at that point. She was sort of adrift in her life. And then Peter Morin literally shows up on her door. And um, he was, she did the sort of work, but he was the kind of brainchild. So Mm. who, who was Peter Morin and what were their, what was their relationship?
1: Yeah, he was a French kind of, uh, you know, intellect like organic intellectual of sorts. Uh, He wasn't like a professor, but he was a a social thinker. He was deeply influenced by this um, kind of idea or or, uh, I don't know, spiritual commitment of personalism. Um, The idea of, of the undeniable dignity of the of the individual before you and that 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 value, the kind of um, intrinsic dignity of, of the person that required a kind of deep engagement with the person right in front of you. You can see that really, you know, in the movement that that Morin and Day um, helped to birth. It was a movement that, you know, is very complicated in terms of the political landscape of its own day and of ours. I mean, in some ways, Day is a radical. She's on the far left. She Um, rejected capitalism as it was um, working out in her own time. She rejected, you know, the kind of extremes of inequality that were visible in her immediate myths and around the world. At the same time, she rejected the welfare state, which was coming to be born in those years. You know, when the movement began in the 1930s, this is the height of New Deal America. And Day and Morin both were really profoundly dissatisfied with what kind of the state could do when it came to to kind of social questions Um, they didn't believe in bureaucracy they believed in kind of being there faithfully present um, radically committed to persons and um, you know I think this again is something that put them at odds in some ways with kind of liberalism as it was coming to be born in the early 20th century, by which I just mean the idea that like the state has a crucial, essential role to play in securing the common good through welfare programs and um, spending programs that, you know, offer people work and offer people also that care for the elderly and care for the sick. I mean, they really, really did not think that state institutions for the elderly or state institutions for the sick, prisons, these kinds of things, she actively disbelieved in them. Um, she thought they were dehumanizing, she thought that they they didn't respect the dignity of the person in the way that people and so she believed you know in a way that sort of, sort of could align her with certain veins of conservatism that, you know, this was really the role of the church. It was really the role of Christians. It was the role of individuals to to like, if every American family took in elderly people and cared for them, that this would be preferable to, you know, outsourcing that responsibility to the state. So she's a complex figure and Morin and his intellectual kind of theoretical ideas about, yeah, I mean, the, the three prongs that you mentioned, the newspaper, the the houses of hospitality and the and the rural communes and the agronomic universities i mean these are all things that morin really deeply believed in and day was sort of the the person who could take his intellectualizing and and make it come alive in the world she was she was a doer in that way
0: You'd mentioned earlier about um, that she came from a, a middle class background, her father had been a journalist, um, and that she embraced poverty, and at the same time, worked her entire life to alleviate uh, sort of destitution is what she called it, right, radical poverty of others, uh, people who didn't choose poverty. So she has she described this relationship, I guess you could say, to poverty as a paradox. She says, quote, I contem- condemn poverty, and I abdicate it. Poverty is simple and complex at once. It is a social phenomenon and a personal matter. Uh, And and you just mentioned also how she was a sort of uh, deeply complex woman. Can we talk more about the sort of the complexity of the way she thought about poverty?
1: Yeah, well, I think the, the, the key to it is that in some sense, Dave was wrestling with how do you how do you live faithfully in a world that is profoundly unequal? And, and part of what for her, I mean, I think, you know, if if we lived in a world where, you know, creation's abundance was shared with some degree of kind of parity across communities and across countries and whatnot, I, I don't think in that case, I mean, they might still have had thoughts about the, the virtues of poverty as a choice, but Um, It really was the fact that so many people didn't choose poverty, that so many people had it, you know, kind of forced upon them by circumstance, by systems, by, yeah, inhumane ways of doing business and setting up societies, Um, and that, that in her view, in some sense, for the Christian, the middle class believer to Indulge in abundance in a world where so many have not enough. She just couldn't reconcile herself to that morally, um, and and she said that you know I think in her view you know her life her witness wasn't going to be able to bring an end to destitution and to the kind of oppression that was so you know profoundly obvious like manifest around the world. But she has these lines where she basically says that. Um, well, the least you can do is not uh, not get rich uh, or not, you know, indulge in in um, plenty when others have not enough. And and so I think for her, this was her way of like um, striving to be faithful. Uh, so to choose poverty for in her case um, was something that she advocated. She didn't advocate immiseration. She didn't advocate destitution. But she did advocate that those who had more that they needed, should give that up in, in a kind of um, solidarity with or gesture of identity with people who didn't choose to be poor, but just were.
0: We've mentioned the three prongs of the Catholic worker movement, um, the newspaper, which Peter Morin described as necessary for, he, he said, for the clarity of thought, Uh, And then the houses of hospitality, which were more than just um, homeless shelters, right, that they offered a sort of uh, integrated care of the soul and body. And then the the farming commune and agronomic universities. Talk about how these three things that seem to be disconnected are sort of an integrated whole that that is the the three different ways of of sort of living out this this. uh, this Catholic life, uh, this life of service that she, that she envisioned? How, what do they have to do with each other?
1: Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, this was not a centralized movement, right? And so it never has been, it still is not today. I mean, there are ways in which Catholic worker communities talk to one another and whatnot, but Day and Morin were not like the, the CEOs of a, of a highly centralized social movement. They were, they were kind of the spirit forces that were kind of helping to animate a thing that was growing organically around the country and so the newspaper in some sense was one of the the things that tied these communities together it was a way that people could learn about what was happening they could engage with the founders kinds of thoughts and ideas about um, pressing issues of the day um, it was it's still today I mean you can I, I actually received the Catholic worker newspaper still to this day and um, it still serves that function so it you know you hear updates about what's happening in different communities you get commentary on the uh, the events of the day and as as Morin said I mean you get the kind of for him and and Dave both, I think the newspaper, which in newspapers, obviously, in the time when the movement was founded, were one of the key ways that people received information. I mean, it wasn't, there was no internet, there was no cable news. This was the, the vehicle for communication and the penny kind of paper model that they took up was one that was, idea, you know, ideally that even, you know, the poorest of workers could could get the paper um so that was that was you know an important way in which the movement was like kind of building and communicating with itself uh you know the houses of hospitality i think are these were places where people came and went from them um you could always get a you know a meal there um there was meals there was prayer um some people came and stayed for decades some people came and stayed for a few days some people came and stayed for weeks and in between people came and went um, part of what comes through in day's own writings and reflections on these houses is, you know, you did have people, all different kinds of people coming for a season of their life to stay in these houses um, and to participate in the community that emerged around the houses, which was a community um, within the house. But then also people would come in and have a meal um, or people would come in and have a meal and talk about the day or talk about what was happening, talk about a strike that had happened down the street. Um, part of what emerges in her writings and reflections is the cast of characters that that came together in these homes, and and really these were not uh, places where kind of a holy huddle of like-minded individuals came together. They were places where you know people that you would never like, people that you would never choose to be friends with, end up in these houses together for a season, and. I love reading Day's reflections on some of the persons. I mean, I I think she was deeply infused with this kind of Catholic idea, right? That um, we find Christ in part in the faces, you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins has the line, you know, Christ plays in 10,000 faces. And I think that in some sense, Day saw Christ at work in the many, many different kinds of faces that came through these homes. um, Some of which, you know, People were racist. People were people were terrible. People were derelict. People were I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which these were houses for sinners. Um, these were places where people came in their brokenness and met one another. And sometimes they found redemption for themselves in the community. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes it didn't work out um, and people left or people created trouble in the communities so there's a way in which like it's easy to think romantically about well what would it be like to live in one of these houses of hospitality and Dave, she was romantic about it again in the sense that she really did believe God was present in these places but she was not romantic about it in the sense that these were not like easy places to live right um So that's that's one of the things I think there's something kind of sacramental, though, about the the ways in which God was present in the midst of these broken communities. And then the the rural uh, commune, this is, again, part of um, Peter Morin's vision, and it was partly kind of connected to these ideas about getting off the grid, getting out from these big uh, oppressive systems and trying to there's kind of an older American and you know, world tradition of kind of the utopia, like going away from society and trying to build something new and different. And I think, you know, you can still find that sort of spirit alive in some of these rural Catholic worker communities today of people who are trying to experiment ecologically, experiment theologically, looking for ways of creating a new kind of community that, you know, one thing that's true and different about the kind of Catholic worker experience than some other sorts of more utopian ventures is I do think that Day and many of her descendants in this movement had visions that um, somehow, some way, mysteriously, the kinds of life that was being born and made in these communities, both in the cities and the countryside, could somehow infuse the broader society. It could somehow become infectious in a way that wasn't obviously clear how it would happen but that god might make it happen anyway um so it wasn't these were not places of just escape they were places laboratories places where um people were trying out the new community that god hoped for
0: you had mentioned uh sort of social stands that she had taken um she'd been very popular for um because of her poverty um and that very quickly increased the number of, of subscriptions to the Catholic worker, um, but because of her social stance, including uh, pacifism, uh, she uh, lost a lot of support, and that included uh, World War II. So during the World War II, a tremendous number of uh, subscribers canceled. She was also later, of course, against uh, Vietnam War, which um i think a lot of sort of people caught up to her by the end of vietnam um and also things that other people might think would be ridiculous so she was against governmental mandatory air raids um and and made public uh, demonstrations against those and would call the police and the news and tell them we're going to be here and You know, sort of not not doing these these air raid drills. Uh, Talk more about her social activism. How did that play into uh, this her her her, uh, vision of poverty? Were they distinct or were they related in some way? And and how did the sort of negative effects uh, uh, against her social um, protests? uh, How did that affect her and the Catholic Worker movement? Yeah, yeah.
1: Day again is complicated in terms of the political landscape because. She's not a liberal. Um, she's not a believer in the welfare state. Um, but she's not, she's certainly not a conservative. Um, she, you know, in so many different ways. I mean, yeah, she's a peace activist who um, throughout her adult life really strongly dissented from all wars, uh, including, as you said, World War II, um, which was uh, a hard thing to do um and and even today obviously people would wonder you know how could you oppose the second world war um you know the fight against the third reich and and whatnot um and i I think for day she was not you know some folks are pragmatists some folks are trying to think about you know given the way the world is today what you know what's the way to kind of make the world a little bit better to make those steps you know and and day Day was a radical in the sense that she um, she was just unwavering in her commitments. So she was a pacifist and she didn't believe in war and she didn't believe it even when there were really good reasons to go to war. She still didn't believe in war. Um, it was deeply unpopular um, and raised a lot of suspicions about the Catholic worker movement, which is already under suspicion because of its radical economic program, you know, sort of... Uh, Outlook, Um, but you know, this was Second World War was a popular war. Uh, You know, especially after the attack on Pearl Harbor, it was. You know, this is a war that had really, really widespread support in the American public, and it still does. Um, So it caused a lot of trouble for them. I mean, Day was also, though. I mean, you know, she was a peace activist. She was a labor activist, and I mean, part of what she wrote a lot about was. Um, you know, her stand with workers against their bosses and she, you know, this was another big kind of consistent stance that she took throughout her life she in the um, heyday of the United Farm Workers she, you know, went out to California and marched with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta um, got arrested out there um, protesting with with uh, great pickers in the Central Valley of California. Um, you know she she didn't she was always more comfortable, I think, in the role of um, agitator and prophet than she was. She was never in any kind of classic sense an institutional builder. she wasn't she wasn't interested in um, you know incremental change. That wasn't her thing. she didn't she she really believed that Christians. Yeah, there's some ways in which uh, I grew up in kind of an evangelical world where there's somewhat similar ways where you can find evangelicals who say, well, look, you've got to take the Sermon on the Mount with all the seriousness, you know, that Jesus preached it. And Day kind of has that mentality, right? I mean, she really isn't, she wasn't about statecraft. That wasn't her thing. She wasn't even about churchcraft in terms of like, trying to build up the institutional church. She really was a principled um, prophetic voice who knew evil when she saw it and was committed to calling it out and wasn't willing to waver. She, didn't, she did not believe that the ends justified the means on really much of anything. So yeah, that, that spirit really pervades her witness is that kind of um, unwavering commitment to social righteousness. Um, and you know, when people would say, "Well, how would you build this system?" I mean, she'd say, "That's not my. That's not my thing. That's not what I do."
0: <laughs> yeah, I think "profit" is an excellent word to describe her. And and uh, you know, I think these days, certainly within the Catholic Church, but even outside of it, I think we have a real lack of of prophets and we need more prophetic voices and that's why I think she's so important certainly in her time but even for today Um, so she was a prophet and and you'd mentioned earlier that she um, you know sometimes would have run-ins with the institutional church at the same time she never sort of intended to undermine it or uh, you know she went to daily mass so she had she had a deep um uh, spirituality, uh, uh, piety in the best sense of that term. So she wasn't, um, uh, you know, like a lot of I think uh, uh, social prophets today who uh, might agree with some of her social stands, but but wouldn't would not be comfortable with her piety, her her uh, commitment to the sacraments, and her, her commitment to the institutional church. Um, so. Can you talk more about her significance in her lifetime in light of her being a prophet and her relationship with the institutional church and this, you know, from the thirties to the fifth, to the eighties, this 50 year period, lots of social changes happening. Um, What, what was her significance during that time?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, Day belongs in a small group of, you know, 20th century Christians who really did um, have an outsized role. I mean, partly for Day, I think she was a kind of conscience of um, certainly American Catholic conscience, but also um, in some ways she was a Catholic who, you know, over the course of that period, obviously from the 30s to the 80s. Catholics are um, coming into the American mainstream in a new way Um, and, and her life and career, or if you can call it a career, (laughs) I think she would reject that terminology actually, but the, 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 you know, throughout her adult life um, as Catholics were becoming uh, more mainstream day was a voice kind of calling out to Catholics and to the wider American public Um, She was not interested in the project of becoming mainstream. She was interested in a project of being faithful. And um, I think, you know, she's one of these people who, because of kind of the, the, you know, her vision is so radical. It's really hard, I think, to a lot of people who find it, you know, very bracing. I've often taught Day and people find her, she's over the top. Uh, in terms of what she what she asks, what she expects, the challenge to embrace a life of voluntary poverty. That's one thing that people, I think, often feel when they encounter her. Um, people get frustrated with her lack of strategic planning. <laughs> she didn't, you know, we need to plan our response to poverty. We need to plan how to address these social issues. We need to kind of game plan it out. And um, 12 step our way forward and she really rejected all those sorts of logics and um I think probably because she did sort of always stand outside the mainstream um I don't know that people people came to see her as a woman of 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 incredible integrity and, and so she did. She became a kind of conscience. She was known as a kind of activist. She rejected, you know, she, she always said, you know, don't call me a saint. Um, and, and I think she rejected any attempts to kind of, uh, yeah, canonize her because it would make it, I mean, she really, really wanted to engage people in their life and in their own conscience and say, hey, this isn't just for me, this is for you too. And so, uh, you know, looking at her as a figure who, you know, she's a world historical figure because she was a prophet. She was uh, someone crying out into the wilderness of, you know, 20th century American empire and calling for Christians to be faithful um, in the midst of it. And, uh, you know, she's rightly remembered. And and like I said, the movement, you know, she ends her a really important, you know, um, memoir, The Long Loneliness, by, by saying that, you know, we were just talking and this began. And um, I think the last line of the book is something like, you know, we were just talking and it began and, you know, it's still going on, you know, to paraphrase. And I mean, the, the remarkable thing is it's still going on. Uh, the movement that she founded has long outlived her you know, it, it continues to attract uh, young and old people, um, people of across class lines and racial lines uh, who, and even to be honest, across religious lines. I mean, Catholic worker houses have a lot of really pious Catholics all day today, but they also draw in uh, a more ecumenical crowd and in a religious crowd even because there is something about her faith And commitment and vision that is still compelling and still speaks to it's amazing to speak to 20 year olds who uh, are still thinking and talking about things that she was thinking and saying 50 or 60 or 70 years ago it's pretty remarkable it's pretty rare to to have someone who's able to pull that off
0: she certainly had significance in her own lifetime. And, and you're certainly correct that, that these houses of hospitality in particular and the newspaper continue till today and inspire people. Um, I wondered if she, if you think she, um, has a, um, a significance for today. Um, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the, the three prongs that we talked about, well, newspapers are dying yeah. and, um, houses of hospitality, as I said, they're not, they're not homeless shelters. Um, And so her sort of model of uh, houses of hospitality, uh, I don't think really took off. And those are being more and more institutionalized to the state, local or, or, or even federal. And then uh, the, the, the farms, um, you know, I think there are certain people who are Making that call as well. If you think of the Benedict Option, they talk about going back to sort of a rural um, agricultural um, way of living. Um, so, so in light of the sort of social changes that have happened since she died, uh, what sort of social significance do you think she has for today?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think days. significance is probably as she would want it, which she never. I think you know if she was to come back and survey the scene and find, you know, lots of buildings named after her and institutions, social welfare institutions, you know, inspired by her. I think she'd probably be appalled. Um, She was never into that. She was never into building an empire and she didn't. And the kind of empire to the extent that, you know, I mean, the, the kind of legacy that she has left is really a moral ethical legacy and a vision of faithfulness that um again you know you'd be hard pressed to find uh a university i think that where where her ideas her person isn't in some ways still alive um you know she's taught in the american history survey class she's she's One of, again, a small number of American Catholics in the 20th century who um, is read, you know, outside of Catholic context, outside of religious context, outside of religious history. Um, She is somebody who stands out as a kind of giant. And I think... uh, it may be true that, you know, the kinds of institutions or, you know, these houses of hospitality and the farms, and they actually think that there is a lot of interest among young people, especially in these sorts of ways of living and that, that kind of intentional community model um, that she she was all about. I think that's that's still certainly a thing that young people are are experimenting with today. Um, but I think more than that, I mean, it is like her witness and her thought about, how to live a life of radical faithfulness in the midst of uh, a broken society. I mean, that that call is her most significant legacy. And I think people today continue to be challenged by the ways that she lived her life. Um, I, a few years ago, you know, uh, was at a talk about, you know, uh, where where the speaker said, you know, I was sort of saying, Asking a question, the kind of question that people ask of Dorothy Day all the time, and um, which is, you know, hey, how do we make the world better? And this person was like, well, you know, you've got to you got to live a life of integrity, and you never know it; it could be infectious. And I think that's what Day believed. She believed that we're called to live lives of integrity, and it could be infectious. And I think in her case, uh, yeah people are still uh, catching on to her vision of radical faithfulness. And that's, that is her on sort of enduring legacy.
0: Final question. Um, We as Christians are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. As you look to the future and think about all the problems in this country and around the world. uh, And it seems that today we don't, we don't have a powerful prophetic voice like Dorothy Day. What gives you hope?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. Um, you know, I I think uh, what gives me hope. I mean, I would say a few things. I mean, one, I'm a I've, I'm a professor. I teach students, and I think I've been teaching now for almost ten years. Um, college students first, and now seminary students. And um, one thing that gives me hope as I you know, you hear a lot of uh, negative ideas about millennials and Gen Z and whatnot. Um, But I I would say I've found a kind of deep moral seriousness in the students that I teach. And, you know, I've taught in both a Christian university setting and a Christian seminary setting. I I kind of, you know, I've found a, a, a sort of enduring desire to sort of think about, and practice faithful faithfulness and and you know I I will say I don't have a lot of hope right now in the the big picture the institutions that structure our lives but I do have hope I guess in what God might be doing on the ground and the ways that people um even young people today um are searching for how to renew our institutions how to renew our society um I see yeah I do I feel like uh I've seen God at work the spirit at work in small ways on the ground and I and I think that at some level that's where I really do find day compelling is that um I don't know that we're any one of us is able to control or really change at a big picture level, like kind of the grandest systems and structures that um, shape our lives. But we can uh, be committed to our local communities. We can be committed to our neighbors, um, loving them, sometimes even radically loving them in ways that do change the world beyond what we could do ourselves. And And I see people doing that on the ground And that gives me hope that, you know, God is at work, the spirit is at work. And as Dave said, um, we can only lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time, but we can pray that God will multiply the fruits of our efforts, like Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes.
0: Well, amen to that. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thanks so much again.